Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen, and joining me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we're going to do here on today's podcast is we're going to discuss some what we've been watching and then move on into an in-depth review of The Irishman. we got Melissa Taminga joining us for that review. It's going to be a good one. You can find more episodes of The Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. And email us is what a lot of people do every single week. I wanted to read this email from Logan from Atlanta this week, who writes into slashfilmcast.gmail.com with a very good question. He writes in, quote, Longtime listener here, I have a topic that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I've seen a couple of worst of lists pop up on Twitter recently, and I'm curious where you three stand on lists like that. Personally, I think they're a waste of time and completely unnecessary. I think it's so much more valuable to discuss why good things are good and giving attention to the art that you think deserves the attention. Worst of lists seem to do the opposite. That's not to say I don't think criticism is okay. It most definitely is. I simply feel like some people think discussing film is to discuss what is wrong with the film and not the other way around. I hope I've articulated this uh, clearly because I'm still working through my thoughts on the matter. I'd love to hear what you think of this. Been a listener for a while and I look forward to listening to your show every week. Thanks so much for what you guys do. P.S. Please do another Slash Filmcast meetup in Decatur. I moved here after uh, the last one and was disappointed. I learned to miss out. I missed out on Devendra and other listeners. So, uh, Logan, I guess, you know, let us know if we can pass your email address on to the Decatur folks. But good question, Logan. Let me ask you, let's start by asking you this, Jeff Kanata. Did you ever do Worst Of at uh, Totally Rat Show? No. Yeah. We never did Worst I, I assume that, I that would go did, against the I, title I, of the show and the ethos of the show, probably, right? Well, I think I think at the end of the year, we would all we would each name uh, like a most disappointing, just a single most disappointing, um, like something we were really, really looking forward to that didn't live up. Uh, but I don't think there's really much. I, I agree with the, the emailer. I, I don't think there's much use in coming up with a list of the worst like the worst is you know why do you need to waste your time i'm not a person that likes to just uh spend a lot of energy ragging on things anyway um but i do think it is useful to talk about things that disappointed things that you expected to be great and didn't live up and uh, oftentimes those things can still have been good they just didn't live up to your lofty expectations for them you know Devendra any opinion on worst of the year list your, your thoughts yeah do you, ever, do you ever read these things do you ever make anything like that for Engadget it depends um for Engadget like I mean a product I think is different than like a piece of art and like a movie so like a product if something just doesn't work it doesn't work and I can say that you know and I give it a bad score or something um when it comes to the movie things, I feel like there's been a lot of discourse of people saying they really only want to talk about the positive side of things and I don't know. I feel like there is there's a lot of value to talking about bad movies and why they're bad. I think you can be mean spirited about it. I think you could you can do it in a really unconstructive way and maybe revel in how much you hate it. Um, But I, you know, I I think there is a place for these. I just think most people probably uh, don't go about it in the best ways. Well, so. I think Whitney Siebold made a really good point about this on Twitter. He says, quote, As critics, we see piles and piles of movies, many of them bad. Lists let us blow off steam, reflect on the meaning of the bad art of the year, posit what uh, those types of movies say about the health of the art form, and invite Hollywood to learn from its mistakes. When you read a best of list from a critic, it's implied they had to sift through a lot of chaff to find the wheat. To ignore the bad films is to not have a full conversation. It's not entirely a critic's job to proliferate positivity. Sure, yep. the best of... 
the best part of our job is to find diamonds in the rough and share our passion, but equally important is surmising the consistency of the rough itself, end quote. Which I really like. Surmising the consistency of the rough. What is you're finding the diamonds in the rough. What is the rough like? I think that's a really, you know, well put, uh, articulate, eloquent uh, point about the value of worst of lists. But here's my problem with the worst of lists. First, first of all, actually, before I even get to my problem with worst of lists, the reason why this prompted so much debate was because Variety published the worst of list, and I think a lot of people thought that that list was pretty terrible. So this list is uh, Pete DeBruge and Owen Gleiberman. And I would like you guys to react via, you know, sat, like uh, groan noises, whether you think this movie should be on the worst movie of the year list, okay? So just like, you know, uh, is like good or uh, is like you shouldn't have put that on the list, okay? <laughs> All right, so this is uh, Owen Gleiberman and uh, Pete, Pete DeBruge. Here we go. Uh, Dumbo, what do you think? Should that be on the worst? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, sure. okay. Glass. How dare uh, you? Uh, no. <laughs> Loquisha. I didn't see. Huh? It? Okay, yeah. Um, Serenity, the Matthew McConaughey movie. Oh uh, yeah, that deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yesterday. Huh? Oh, whoa, that's brutal. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's the movie does not deserve to be on. Yeah, the worst of the list. No. Yeah, yeah. Um. And then there's other choices on here too. You, we can stop the, do, doing the noise thing, but like yeah. Men in Black International, that deserves to be on there in my opinion. Yeah. But like yeah. Rocket Man, Annabelle Comes Home, you know, like here's the here's my problem it, with with worst of the year list is movies are generated at such a high clip these days. Like thousands of movies come out per year right now. Right. right? So he, the the problem is with these worst of lists is the same problem as the Razzies is you're not choosing the actual worst movies of the year because I guarantee you the worst movies of the year are movies most people have not heard of, right? right. Some straight-to-video. Some straight-to-video. They're movies that people like made on the iPhone or they're movies that yeah. like like people But that's why I to... think that the term most disappointing is is maybe more useful. It, it, it feels like what, what we're judging is the delta between what sure. we think it should have been yeah. versus how it turned out. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think that's right, Jeff. I think I think the the term worst of the year is a misnomer unless you are actually going to list like unwatchable movies. Like that yeah. that should be the bar in my opinion of like what a worst of the year yeah. list is is unwatchable. Like Yeah, I you know, I've been to uh film school <laughs> final project right. day. It's you like know? film school think like film school final project caliber <laughs> is what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. So that that but is But that's you know, that's yeah. But what they're really saying is, you had something with the with the talent of Matthew McConaughey and uh, um, Anne uh, Hathaway in it. <laughs> it shouldn't have turned out as bad as Serenity, right? You know, like that's what they're saying. It is. It was really bad based on the amount of talent you had at, and money that was spent at, at in this film. Uh, that I'll buy. You know, that I'll buy. Well, that, but even that, though, the, Jeff, that is not how this list is is framed. Even if you read the descriptions. It's not like, right. oh wow, it should have been awesome, but it was not bad. It was not good. You know, right. it's like this is actually one of the worst movies of the year, right? Yeah. Um, in the case of yesterday, he's like, there's no ro- romantic chemistry, and you know, uh, I couldn't get past the concept of this insipid fantasy. So I, I think like that's my problem with worst of the year list. It's not that I think people shouldn't make them because I agree with Whitney Siebel that like you should. Uh, uh, it, it, there's value in describing 
why something is bad and maybe maybe there's something that it says about us as a society about like why mo- movies are bad in this specific way and there's a lot of them this year so i think there is value there but like uh, mm-hmm. The problem is, I think that in some ways these worst of year lists are intellectually dishonest, right? Because they're they're not actually yeah. the worst of, li- in my opinion. Like, I think if you actually went out and looked for worst, that you could easily find movies that were worse than these. So that's kind of my problem. But I thought it was an interesting conversation that happened this week as a result of Variety publishing that list. Wanted to talk with you folks about it. So that's an email from Logan from Atlanta. We could just all agree that Serenity was bad, right? I mean, take, bad, bad is a strong word, Jeff. You know, I mean, <laughs> I I would argue that that's uh, so bad it's good. You know, oh Serenity, no, so bad no, no. and then how do you judge that? Yeah, yeah. I, to no. me, that's a more fun list, by the way. The so bad it's good list. Yeah, you. But Jeff does not agree with that. He thinks it's so bad it's bad, but mostly because it violated his <laughs> opinions on like uh, his sensibility on what what a vi- well. Actually, I can't even <laughs> say what it is because it's a spoiler. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a spoiler. It violated all is. my sensibilities. Is is apt, so, yeah. Violated, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's talk about uh, some what we've been watching. Um, I want to talk briefly about what I've been watching this week. Um, first of all, I watched the series finale of Silicon Valley. Now, do any of you care if I spoil the series finale of Silicon Valley? Oh, I saw it. I just you saw, saw it. it? Yeah. Jeff Kanata, do you care? What are your thoughts? I mean, there's a part of me that thinks I'm going to eventually watch this, but I'm never going to watch it. Okay, know, well, so. let's just say, uh, spoilers for Silicon Valley, series finale, I'll just say very briefly, um, I think that this show, at its best, has been a great lampooning of out-of-control startup culture. Sure. And yeah. has given us some very memorable moments, um, some of which involve Stephen Tobolowsky, friend of, friend of the show. And uh, it, it, it reached extremely high highs and kind of seemed to dominate the culture for a bit and fell prey to kind of not knowing how to bring, how, how to like take the plot lines of the show and the characters forward, in my opinion. Like yeah. so many episodes were like, hey, we've gotten ourselves into an intractable problem and ooh, a deus ex machina solves it. Like very entourage style in terms of like, how plots were resolved on a on a weekly basis, um, and so that that got to be quite disappointing. But I have to say, the ending of the show was great. Uh, I thought the series finale did honor to a lot of the characters. It brought it back down to the original, or you know, as much of the original five as was willing to participate, <laughs> and um, and really like kind of uh, was funny and moving. And captured what made this show great in the first place. I, I thought it was a great ending. What do you think, Devendra? I really enjoyed it. I feel like it is a lot of it felt a little neat in terms of like the conflict that arose in the finale, which seemed like a bigger deal than we initially <laughs> thought. Like I feel like that's something you you can kind of seed throughout the entire season right. in a way, like build up that drama. It just seemed like this very, very terrible thing happened after they had some good news, which is something that happens a lot in this show. Like they can never really have a win. And I do kind of like that. Yeah. Even at the end, they never really quite get that win or the win is even too good. It's too good to actually be it, a win basically. It, yeah. But I think you're right. It ups, it ups the stakes to literally apocalyptic levels. Right. Yeah. And that this escalated very quickly from the last episode. Yeah. And it didn't really do anything to kind of seed that idea in earlier on. But uh, I Mm -hmm. thought it was very funny. And 
it just it just was a great finale. It's like wow, they really. They, I don't know that they stuck the thing that comes before the landing, the pre landing. I don't know that they stuck the pre landing, but they really stuck the landing, in my opinion. So I think this whole season has been pretty strong. I think stronger than some of the last few because they had to come in for the landing, which is uh, certainly yeah, they, next. they can be more fearless in terms of what they do with the characters. Yeah. I think, and I do. I find it kind of funny that uh, now that AT and T owns HBO, I guess like it's. Well, it it's, it's hilarious funny. because AT and T yeah. owns HBO. The the basically the plot yeah. line involved like a, a kind of something terrible happening to AT and T, right? AT and T owns HBO, and also <laughs> Richard Hendricks is a spokesperson for Verizon. Yes, right? so it's pretty hilarious that uh, AT and T kind of gets the shaft in this episode. Um, also, the the very idea of Pied Piper is uh, you know decentralized internet. It, it was all about saying fuck you to the uh, the carriers because every device would create its own like network and talk to each other. So even the idea of them partnering with AT and T later on just seemed like oh why 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 that's like <laughs> it doesn't none of that makes sense. But yeah. okay, and I think the finale actually did a good job of not bringing that to conclusion basically like that that didn't actually work out for them so that's i appreciate that indeed indeed um so that's silicon valley the series finale uh it's it's a great it's a great finale I, i'm like a big fan of this finale and I can't wait to rewatch it from the beginning too like there is this is a show that was so tight like when it was good it was very very good first couple seasons excellent so excellent really like season three four maybe a bit of five got pretty <laughs> uh wheel spinny Pretty, you know, like, hey, we're spinning our wheels. Things aren't really going anywhere in a way that was I, I found to be kind of frustrating. But they stuck the landing. And I think that really goes for a lot in this day and age. So uh, that's Silicon Valley series finale. You can watch it right now on HBO. Uh, which brings us to our first sponsor for the day. Jeff Kanata, tell us about it. Well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Lightstream. Uh, I'm a person that does not like to maintain debt on my credit card because I feel like, why do you want to have something cost more than it is? The the APRs on credit cards can be insane. An interest rate of over 20% on some credit cards, nuts, nuts. And if you're carrying debt on your credit card, you got to get rid of it. It's just going to bog you down. And there's a way to do it with Lightstream. Lightstream wants to help you get a lower percentage rate. So maybe you can work off that debt. You can get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay. When you refinance your credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream, you can get loans from $5,000 to $100,000 with no fees. There's no application fees, no origination fees, no transaction fees, no prepayment penalties. So get yourself out of debt. Lower that percentage rate. And just for our listeners, you can apply now and get an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get that discount is to go to lightstream.com slash filmcast. That's lightstream.com slash filmcast for an additional discount. L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash filmcast. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes a 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash filmcast for more information. All right. Let's talk about something else I've been watching this week. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I first heard about this movie when Ben Pearson recommended it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And Devingra, you watched this movie as well. How did you see this movie? 
I saw at the Angelica here. It was uh, here for basically a limited run this week in New York. But I guess uh, so. Was it over there? Same deal. I actually was able to watch it on a screener disc. So um, ah, okay. I, I'm just curious. I, I believe it's out in limited release right now. The movie's portrait. It's, well, no, right now it's basically a week at, I think maybe just the Angelica, maybe oh, LA, wow. but it's not actually so, going to be limited until like uh, February or something. I see. It's going to so be wild. ultra, ultra limited release right now. So um, I, I had to see. It. I was like, okay, New York's hottest <laughs> club is this theater. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we, we shouldn't talk too much about it then because people haven't had a chance to watch it, but the movie's directed by Celine Siama. Uh, and it takes place in at the end of the 18th century. It's about this woman named Marianne, a young painter, um, who uh, is commissioned to do a painting of uh, a young woman uh, named Eloise. And that's basically the plot of the movie, yeah. at least as much as but we'll do it in secret. Podcast. But that, do it that, in secret. Like she can't. She yes. can't. She can't reveal that she's doing the painting. Yeah. So that's about as much as a plot as I think we should reveal on this show. Uh, but suffice to say, I thought this movie was excellent. Uh, I thought it was very beautiful. It's ama- It's amazingly shot. Most of the movie takes place in kind of these extremely long takes. Uh, often where you have two characters in them, so you can really see like these characters bouncing off each other and react to each other in a way that feels very naturalistic. Um, I think the costuming is impeccable. The, the artwork and the way they show the art being made is fascinating. It's beautiful. Uh, I really liked it. I found it compelling, very moving. Uh, those are my thoughts on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Devinder Hardor, what do you think of it? It's uh, yeah, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Um you know, it's it's sort of like it is in many ways a slow burn movie because you're slowly starting to see this relationship bud between these two women and the sort of like connection they form. Uh, but this movie is also filmed with such evocative imagery, like even the poster. The poster gives away, I think, one of the the most gorgeous shots of the film is just a woman standing in complete blackness and her dress is on fire from the bottom. And it's just and her look is so it is it is such a beguiling and interesting look. And so much of this movie is people looking at each other and not saying things, but, you know, really trying to convey something. It reminds me a lot of uh, Cold War. And sort of the the like doomed nature of that movie, but maybe on another level, um, yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking, pretty beautiful. Um, there's so many shots of this movie that I can't wait to see again. It is it is stunning. Yeah, yeah. The movie is Portrait of Lady on Fire. If you have a chance to check it out, do so. Yeah, it's uh, gonna be out on Valentine's Day actually, and it is a perfect. It would be a perfect Valentine's Day movie. Don't know if I agree there, but yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I really love the movie. Uh, you know what I actually thought? The thought I had when I watched this movie is. Like, this must be what people felt like when they said they liked Call Me By Your Name, which is a movie I was not yes, a big fan yes. of. Yes, yes. It is very, it is like, uh, yeah, a very mirror type of image movie of uh, against Call Me By Your Name. I, yeah. I just think, like, the direction of this movie, there's just so much to recommend it, in my opinion. Yes. Which, like, yes. I didn't, you know, Call Me By Your Name, I just thought was, like, visually a lot less interesting. Um, the entire movie, Call Me By Your Name, was shot on, I think, a single lens, right? Which, like, gives it a very specific, almost documentary like feel and this movie is not like that in my opinion it's it's yeah, very yeah. much more deliberate with its compositions and obviously you have the period piece costumes as well so i just feel like there's just a lot like for me personally i know a lot of people sure, love call sure, by sure. your name but for me personally there was a lot more for me to enjoy here in in the portrait of yeah, i'll say the real star of called me by your name was like that that gorgeous villa and the like you know italian countryside and everything like it it, it, it did a good job of conveying beauty that way even if it's Cinematic techniques weren't as involved as this movie. This movie has one shot that uh, it's it's almost like uh, it's like a ghostly apparition 
that kind of shocked me a little, like just seeing it, it happened so well. So I can't wait to talk more about this movie when more people can see it. All right. Well, that's uh, Portrait of Lady on Fire. And I just want to say I saw Uncut Gems and uh, it was extremely good. It was extremely good. It, it is a contender for my top 10 of the year. How uncut uh, were those gems? actually shockingly uncut as we're going to talk about in a future episode of the slash cast um <laughs> like uncut to a degree that would surprise you and i'm being 100 percent serious so uh david what have you been watching this week i also finally got to see uh the last black man in san francisco which is the debut feature by joe talbot uh starring two indie actors jimmy fails and uh, jonathan majors and it's partially based on jimmy fails life about um I believe trying to find, uh, trying to reclaim a house that his family had owned in San Francisco. And it's a story of like, yeah, two black men basically trying to find their place in a city that's quickly moving past them. And I, this movie is gorgeous. It's, uh, it's fascinating. I think it is a great reflection of what it is to love a place in a city. Uh, one conversation they have in this movie uh, at some point um, against some gentrifiers who are talking about like how much they hate San Francisco. And this main character played by Jimmy fails basically says you have to love a place to hate it. And that made, <laughs> I, I found that to be really interesting in terms of at least, at least a place like to truly hate something. You have to have some love for it. You have to know what you've lost. And I found that to be a really fascinating description of I don't know, life in San Francisco, certainly now for residents who don't have as much a place in that city uh, compared to like the tech bros and the millionaires out there. Um, honestly, I'm thinking like that line just kind of hit me, too, because I'm thinking about like the idea of maybe eventually leaving New York. And so much of it is I really love this city, but it is unsustainable for me in many ways because it's very hard to raise a kid in New York. Um, and I just wish it wasn't the case. It's sort of like wanting to be somewhere where you are unloved and un, like basically unsupported. It's such an interesting balance. Uh, this movie is gorgeous. It's incredible. Go check it out. It is streaming on Amazon Prime now, so it's pretty easy to watch. All right. Uh, that is The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and uh, it is streaming right now. Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching this week? Well, I, uh, I wanted to watch, it was Thursday night and I wanted to sit down. The wife was going to sleep early and I'm like, I'm going to stay up and watch myself a movie. And I wanted to watch that marriage story because I've heard such amazing things chiefly from you, Dave, last week. <laughs> and you said, Hey, only watch that when your wife is, uh, you know, not in the same room. So I was all set to do it, loaded up the old Netflix. I'm like, that's weird. It's not in the, not in my um, any of my menus here. I'm going to search for it. What? Even if I put in the first word, it doesn't come up. It's got all these other marriage movies. All right. Marriage story. There it is. Oh, oh, it doesn't come out till tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> can't watch that. But now I'm itching to watch a movie. So what did I do? What did I do? See, I loaded up that old AMC Stubbs A-list app on the mm, phone. Nice. I was like, Hey, I don't know if you guys know this, but I live across the street from a movie theater. So it was super huh. easy for me to just, Hop over there with that AMC Stubbs A-list, see if there's any late night movies playing, like a 10, 20, 10, 30 showing. What did I see? I saw The Good Liar, which is the new Bill Condon joint with uh, Helen Mirren and yes. Ian McKellen. I love me. I love me some McKellen and Mirren. I love, I mean, I am a Anglophile 
I am a, a, an old Shakespeare actor and fan, and I, you know, I have studied at the at the feet of tapes of those actors playing the great Shakespearean roles, all the RSC tapes uh, and RADA tapes. So I, I'm a huge fan of them, and they can pretty much get me into the door to see anything, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> For the good life. Because there's no other reason you would see this film, basically. Right? That is absolutely correct. Yeah. And um, <laughs> certainly no reason for anyone to go into a big movie theater to see it. Uh, I was the only person in my screening at 1030 nice. on a Thursday night. Nice. Uh, shockingly. Um, but seeing them work, watching them work is delightful. They are skillful actors and they bring their A game as they always do to this material as well. Not sure the material justified it, but uh, so, I mean, I guess so it's the trailer made it look Hitchcockian. Jeff, was it Hitchcockian? Well, here's what I thought I was getting myself into. This is a this is a good liar, right? This is a, a movie about con artists. I yeah. love con artists. I love a good con game movie. Oh, you know, we talked that when on the Knives Out episode, we talked about how fun uh, a good you know parlor murder mystery is. Love those. If there's something I like even more than a good parlor murder mystery, it's a con movie. Oh. I'm into it. Love con artists, love con, you know, there's a figuring those out, being fooled myself. Thought that's what I was getting myself into. Uh, not so much. Not so much. This movie takes a real turn in the third act because for the first two acts, you are uh, hanging out with a charming uh, British uh, couple that have uh, found each other. You get the sense that there's uh, some stuff going on because there's some weird. Uh, other things happening, especially with Ian McKellen's character. You, you, get the, you get the feeling that he's kind of running the con a little bit. And then the movie's like, no, it's not so much about that. It's about uh, something way darker than that. <laughs> and way less fun. And uh, I'm sorry, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know what the big twist no, is. No, I don't. Movie. I don't. Yeah, so don't no. reveal yeah. it. It's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I really want to see yeah, it. Now, yeah, now now you've made me really want to see it, Jeff. So. Okay. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> should, it's, should, uh, should I want to see it? It's not a bad movie. It's perfectly watchable. And the, the talent that they bring to it, I mean, Condon's a good director. It's a, you know, it's a, it's just like, oh, this is where we're going? Oh, oh, here? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's what we're doing. And you could totally see that this was a novel. Like it, 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 it feels so much like a book. <laughs> like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. This is that chapter where that happens. All right. Um, so, I, I, I didn't particularly enjoy it. Not just because of that turn. It just, it just never. It, it's a little bit of a lifeless movie. It just doesn't have any zip to it. Even with the talent on display and, and, and these actors bringing a little zip of their own and there's a glimmer in their eyes. And you know, the, the first act of this movie is kind of a, a little like, you know, um, what do they call it? A sunset love story. You know, it's like a late in their life couple that find each other late in life. And, and that's kind of fun. We're having a little bit of fun, but then this movie is like, there's no fun allowed anymore. No fun allowed. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the, the good liar, I, you know, it it was a bit of a disappointment for me. I just Did it didn't lie feel... to you, Jeff? I guess so. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. And maybe surely <laughs> the greatest the, like... liar. Yeah. 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 If you look to your left, look to your right. Maybe you the, good, liar. the good liar was the movie's advertising. 
I didn't see any of the advertising. I just, you know, I just saw the cast list. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's more aptly named the, uh, you know, fine liar. It's fine. It's fine liar. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good liar. It's out in theaters right now. Uh, Jeff, what else have we been watching this week? Well, my wife and I stuck with the morning show on Apple TV and this is the star-studded, absolutely star-studded Apple TV show. Uh, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, um, Billy Crudup, Mark Duplass, uh, Steve Carell. I mean, it is just uh, star-studded. And it's about a morning show like Good Morning America or something like that. Uh, I mean, it, it really is basically about um, – what's his name? What's the guy that got – the that was having Steve Lauer, huh? Oh, Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer. Yeah. Matt Lauer. Yeah. yeah, it's basically about Matt Lauer. Yes. Um, and um, eight episodes. Uh, this movie, uh, movie, this show is like just good enough that I didn't want to stop watching it. I was like, we'll see this through, <laughs> but it's really not as good as it should be. It really wants to be newsroom, right? It uh-huh. really feels like it's newsroom. But newsroom is about the news, right? It's about yeah. It was about real news, like reflexively looking at real news. Yeah. Well, also it's about you know in, in a very Sorkin-y way, which is you know I, my bread and butter. I eat it up like candy. It's about the smartest people in the world being smart and doing the best they can do at a yep. job that matters. And this show kind of thinks it's that, but the whole time you're like, this is a morning show. You know, it's like, you know, like not to take anything away from morning Millions shows, of people wake up to this, Jeff. Yeah, Come on. I'm sure they're, <laughs> their work matters. I have no doubt they are difficult to make, and I have no doubt a lot of people get their news from them. But also, you know, it, yeah, they're not, yeah. it's not. I guess I not, shouldn't pitch you my new TV idea, the podcast show, Jeff. Yeah, yeah no kidding, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. In the morning. We only record in the mornings. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, these are charming people, charming actors uh, that are fun to watch. And it's I mean, I think Jennifer Aniston does a does a great job. I had a real problem with the Reese Witherspoon character. Boy, she's grating. Not yeah. as, not the actress, but just the character and the whole idea behind the character is super grating. And it really becomes the centerpiece of the show until the last episode. And Reese Witherspoon is not in the last episode. And the last episode is by far the best episode of the series. And it is a complete outlier for the rest of the series. Um, I guess it's a tiny spoiler. You may want to skip ahead 15 seconds if you plan on watching the morning show. But I will say the last episode is completely a flashback. So if the show was all about that, the show starts as the fallout for what you see in episode eight, really. And it's so much more interesting. Like, let's start there. Let's like, it's so much more interesting to see it happen in real time. And I think it has such more life to it. And and there's no Reese Witherspoon character in that episode. <laughs> um, and it's a weird way to end the show. It's a weird way to end the season because you have like episode seven is not the end of the story. They've already green lighted a second season. So we're going to see more of that story. But then like episode eight is just completely a flashback episode so you're uh, it's very odd it's very odd but i will say this whole show i think is worth watching for billy crudup billy crudup in the show is 
you can't take your eyes off him. He's so good. He's, he plays this kind of like smug, smarmy executive character, and he does it with aplomb. He does it with such a like center of gravity that's incredible. I love watching him in the show. He's amazing. And I keep going like, what is he doing? What is he do? How is he creating that just completely owning every scene he's in thing? Like he, it doesn't matter what the other character is in the, in the scene. He is completely in command. He's standing there. He's smiling. It is. <laughs> well, he is playing the smartest guy in the room. Like he is that yeah. guy. He is such a sorking character for sure. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I, I loved watching him work in this. I'm like, oh, crud up, man. He needs to be more stuff. He's so good. Um, but, you know, the whole cast is – is they're charming people, and it's a very watchable show. And it really wants to be about Me Too. You know, it really feels like the whole reason the show is made is because it wants to be of the moment and in the moment. And it, it, it well, has just, very – just to clarify, like, it, 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 Me Too was originally not a uh, plot point in the show – um, but then during the making of the show, uh, it obviously became something it had to address. So like, that's uh, so the entire show is about it. Right, right. No, that, it is, but that's it is the, the complete cor- raison d'etre for this show. Correct. But I'm just, so that's, but that's why I wanted to clarify. Cause you're saying like, oh, it was made because of me too. When in fact it predated me too. And then they had to kind of shoehorn me too into it. Although I think based on what you're saying is you find that the shoehorning was, uh, convincing. Man, I, I'm shocked to hear it was shoehorned. I, it feels like a page one rewrite. This feels like, oh, we're making a show about Me Too now. I mean, mm. every literally every character in it is through the lens of Me Too. It is the B story, C story. They're all mm. about that. It yeah. is a completely – the show is about that. I mean, it is showing you different versions of inappropriate relationships, and it's showing you like – are we okay thinking that all of these are painted with the same brush, right? There's two people, two characters in the show that have like a genuine romance, but there's a power differential dynamic and you go, well, that's kind of okay. And then they shows you the bad one and you're like, well, that's not okay. And then the show kind of asks you why you feel that way. I mean, the the entire thing is about that. So it's not, it's a shock to me that it would be, it would feel, it doesn't feel shoehorned. It feels like it is the, orbit around which the whole show you know so according to jennifer aniston in the variety she says the show got picked up we sold it to apple with an outline then about four months later the whole shit hit the fan and basically we had to start from scratch yeah that sounds sounds right yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah so but it sounds like overall um you actually enjoyed watching the show is that right jeff the morning show i i did i mean it felt like um it didn't feel like a home run and it didn't feel like a show that i couldn't miss but I was like, eight episodes, I'll stick with this. It, 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 it certainly, there's money on the screen in the show, man. They, it is a very expensive looking show. And there's a, a sequence in the middle of it where they go and, and they cover the fires in Los Angeles. And it's like, wow, money was spent on this, on this show. Um, and so just kind of that is compelling and in seeing a very, you know, cinematic hour long TV show, um, it's just not completely it, – it, it, it's hard because you constantly compare it to Sorkin and it's just not in that league at all. Mm. Well, that is The Morning Show and it's available right now on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I assume you got the free year, Jeff. That's how you watched it, right? I got the free year because nice. of my phone. What was it? Yeah. You bought a new phone, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I got that. I got that new phone with the three cameras. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, indeed. 
Uh, well, Jeff, why don't we get to our next sponsor? Sure. Just before I do that, though, I just want to say it is hilarious how often Apple products are in this show. <laughs> <laughs> it is wall to wall, nonstop yeah. Apple products, and, and you know, authentically so. I could imagine everyone on a show like that would have a Mac and have you know an iPhone and an iPad and an Apple Watch, and but it's like you go, oh, when it's on the Apple channel, on the Apple app, you know, it's you feel like. You see what you're doing. Anyway. I can't wait until the Apple medical show, by the way, when like an Apple watch, it's just like how the Apple watch saves lives. Yeah. 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 It detected the yeah. heartbeat, you know, <laughs> like every single week detecting the heartbeat yes. was the key to success. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy how people, uh, you know, put products and things anyway, now on to our sponsor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if I had one wish this holiday season, it would be that you through the power of podcasting, could smell me. If we could figure out smelling, the, the sense of smell through a podcast. I do dream of that day, Jeff. Right? Yes. Don't we all? Don't you want to be sitting here listening to the Slash Filmcast and going, God, I wish I could smell them. If you could, you would smell my deodorant, which is native, which is our sponsor, because I'm wearing it right now. Why? It smells real good. It smells real good. What is Native? Native is a company that creates safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. They create products with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. They have over 9,000 five-star reviews from customers. What I like about Native is simple ingredients, very few uh, uh, ingredients compared to a lot of deodorants. Um, they say their ingredients are found in nature, actually found in nature, like coconut oil, shea butter, uh, tapioca starch. I don't know about all that stuff. All I know is smells real good. I have a couple of different ones now. Their most popular scent is called coconut and vanilla, which you go, do I want to smell like that? You do. Trust me. If only there was a way you could smell me, you would know. I actually smell right now like the cucumber and mint, which is the one I just got and have been using. Uh, if you could smell me, you would re recognize it's real good because I like it. I would never in a store go, oh, I want the cucumber and mint deodorant because I don't know. That doesn't – how do I know what that smells like? That doesn't – it smells like you would want to eat me. No. It smells delightful. It is so fresh and wonderful. So give it a try. There's no risk to try. They offer free returns and exchanges in the U.S. Native does. And we're going to hook you up with a discount for 20% off your first purchase. Visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code FILMCAST during checkout. That is – nativedeodorant.com promo code filmcast for 20% off your first purchase. Give it a shot. Check it out. It's a delightful thing. If I could just let you smell me, I would, but I can't. So you got to try it. No risk to try. Get that 20% off nativedeodorant.com promo code filmcast. All right. Uh, before we get to our review, we want to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to Nelson Wong for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. And thanks also to donors Julian Gray and Brett Chalupa for their one-time donations. We also got a donation from Paul Mizzy from Adelaide, Australia, who writes in, Hey guys, just want to say thank you. David Chen's podcast and especially the Slash Filmcast have been a huge inspiration for starting my own podcast. I decided to dedicate a podcast to the niche subgenre that is body swap films. Since launching this insane concept, which we call the Swapcast <laughs> Podcast... 
The show has been featured on the AV Club, joined a major podcast network, and today Apple has deemed us new and noteworthy. It's been hugely satisfying doing something creative that has resonated with people, and I owe a big part of that to you guys, so I wanted to donate something to show my gratitude. Keep up the great work, and if you ever need an expert guest on a body swap film, you know where to find him. So that's Paul from the Swapcast podcast. Uh, What does it feel like when someone is inspired by you and then wildly outstrips your success? Uh, I mean... It, I, I gotta say, um, it feels great, Jeff. It feels yeah. great. Zero, no regrets. <laughs> no regrets. Do you kind of wish, though, like a little bit that you could just body swap with him, just a little bit? <laughs> um, I, I will say this, though. You know what, Paul? Um, if we ever review a body swap movie, I will contact you. I, do, are there any body swap movies coming up in the near future? I don't think so, right? I think you'd have mm-hmm. to ask Paul. I don't. I don't Avatar, know maybe. <laughs> Avatar. Does that two? count? I don't know if that counts. Yeah, I don't know if that counts. Yeah. Anyway, thanks. We're talking to... like Freaky Friday. Yeah, I know, I know, I know and... what a body swap movie is. I'm Jeff. talking. I'm telling the audience in case they don't. You know, <laughs> we're talking like uh, what, what name? How many of them can you name? Um, What's the one with ba- Judge Reinhold? The Jason uh, Bateman one with Ryan Reynolds. The Change Up, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, at thirty going on thirteen, or thirteen going on thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the one with Judge Reinhold. There's one with with George Burns from my youth. Yeah, no, I got nothing. I got nothing. Oh, I bet on. if we go to the swap uh, the Swapcast podcast page, every episode is probably entitled oh. some one movie. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so that's what you should do if you want <laughs> to learn more about body swap movies. Yeah, I guess so. And on that note, um, we should also say, hey. Uh, we never want you to donate if it in any way causes you hardship. Uh, we'd love it if you just left a review for us or a five-star rating. That'd be great. But if you do want to throw some cash our way, it really does help. And, uh, of course, we really value it, especially in this, the holiday season. You can go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast if you want to donate to us. Uh, that's going to do it for what we've been watching for donations, for emails. Let's get to our review of The Irishman. And the show's going to get way better now because there's a professor coming on just so you know <laughs> frank sheeran i said that right yeah you said it right uh under the contract management can only fire a driver on very specific charges so you ever show up late no do you have any moving violations no do you drink on the job no you ever hit anybody on a job yeah i don't think so all right, then. We don't have nothing to worry about. But now I'm a man. I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. How are you? Hi, nice to meet you. It was like the army. You followed orders. You did the right thing. You got rewarded. I'm a man. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. A friend at the top. Back then, there was nobody in this country who didn't know who Jimmy Hoffa was. Charge a guy with a gun. With a knife, you run away. So you charge with a gun, with a knife, you run. That was from the trailer for The Irishman, the new film by director Martin Scorsese. It's available right now on Netflix. Uh, The plot summary online. I'm not going to read the IMDb plot summary because it's a little spoilery. I'll read you another plot summary. Um, In the 1950s, truck driver Frank Sheeran gets involved with Russell Bufalino and his Pennsylvania crime family. As Sheeran climbs the ranks to become a top hitman, he also goes to work for Jimmy Hoffa, a powerful teamster tied to organized crime. 
So uh, this is the Slash Film Cast, and joining us today for the first time, she is a professor of film at Wacom Community College and a writer for Seattle Screen Scene. Melissa Tominga, welcome to the Slash Film Cast. How are you doing tonight, Melissa? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to have you on, and glad to have you join us for our review of The Irishman. This is a movie that has prompted a lot of capital D discourse even before the movie was even released. Uh, and of course, a lot of that discourse uh, revolved around Martin Scorsese's thoughts on Marvel films. Now that the movie's out, it's available. Uh, uh, you know, billions of people can stream it right now. Uh, I'm glad we get to take the movie on its own terms. There's so much to discuss. But Melissa, I guess let's just start with your overall thoughts on the film. What did you think of The Irishman? Oh, wow. It's such a hard film to sum up, I think, in part because it took me a couple of watches to really decide what I what I think. But I ultimately did come out loving it, um, which kind of... Wait, how many total hours do you have invested in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> just seven. Just seven. <laughs> just seven. Oh, okay. And she only saw it twice. Yeah. That's crazy. right. That's right. Exactly. Um, and I, I've had a sort of a complicated relationship with a number of Scorsese's films, particularly Goodfellas and something like Raging Bull, in part because I'm not always sure what to make of his depictions of the sort of abusive, criminal, destructive male behavior. And there's this kind of obsessive fascination with that behavior that feels kind of uncomfortable to me, especially when that behavior includes um, misogyny. I mean, in the end, I don't think Scorsese is endorsing that. He's ultimately an artist who's interested in human beings, but they can be really brutal films to watch, seeing women particularly abused, sidelined, objectified on screen by these bad but really fascinating men. Um, And the films aren't really then either about the women or really interested in their stories. But I think one of the the gifts of having a, a filmmaker like Scorsese, someone who's been working for almost 50 years, what, 40, 45 years or so, is the way that his work kind of comments on itself. And The Irishman, in some ways, is like the anti-Goodfellas, which I do really appreciate Goodfellas, but I'm super uncomfortable with it. Um, but I think if if we don't see sort of the hollowness of, of Henry Hill's uh, mobster life in Goodfellas because of all the glamour and the flashiness and the filmmaking is so fun, um, we see sort of that hollowness coming out in this Film. So you have Goodfellas on the one hand, which is flashy, frenetic, invigorating, and then The Irishman, which is this long, sedate uh, work kind of patiently building um, what I think adds up to a lot of emptiness in the central character's life. And even the camera work and the editing feels really slow and patient. And so I was just really drawn into the contrast of those two things in, in a way almost inspired in spite of myself. So I, I love that it depicts kind of mobster life. We see plenty of deaths, but none of these deaths are particularly exciting. There's a kind of rawness to it without being cathartic. Um, and it feels like a kind of comment on the fascination, even with violence in American films, while not having that sort of, I don't know, finger wagging self-righteousness that like a Michael Hanukkah, uh, funny games might have or something. Um, and I also love that it is a film that it's in it's it's a film that's about death in many ways, and yet the the central characters constantly have to speak in euphemisms and pretend that that's not really what they're doing or what they're about. Um, so it's a it's a it's a film about men who are dealing with death, but they can't really face their own death. And then I think maybe we'll get to a little bit of this later, but it is a film also that 
makes us feel, I think, the loss of women's stories and women's voices in the way that Goodfellas does not. And so ultimately, I just love the kind of arc that we're seeing of Scorsese's career. And I love the fact that he, at 77 years old, decided to make this three and a half hour, super slowly faced, paced film that is a follow-up to a really another long film that it's about this, these 17th century Jesuit priests. I mean, the kind of, um, the, the fact that he chose to do something like that is just kind of a, a stunning commentary on just his dedication to tell the stories that I think he wants to tell. So I ended up loving it, but I kind of had to get there <laughs> to work through it a little bit. Fair enough. Yeah, it sounds like a sounds like a, a journey there. But uh, you make so many great points. One of them I want to call out is just the depiction of violence in this movie. I think is is very interesting, as you say, because you could watch Goodfellas and interpret it as a condemnation of the gangster lifestyle. Right. I mean, I think it's very valid yeah. interpretation to come away from that movie and think. Gangsters are not cool. They end up in horrible situations. You know, their loved ones fall away from them. Um, they're constantly living in fear. Blah blah blah. And they have some great early times. Um, yeah. But I think that like one of the iconic scenes from that movie is the uh, murder of Billy Bats. And uh, in, in that movie is the murder of Billy Bats, and it is set to Atlantis by Donovan, right? And even mm -hmm. though the violence is horrifying. The fact that Scorsese has such a great ear for musical cues, you watch that scene and you're, you know, I don't know what other people's reaction is, but when I watch it, I'm like, wow, this is a beautifully rendered, uh, you know, mobster execution, right? Like, it's it's beautiful the way this is done because of the way the, the camera is like overhead as he's strangling him to death. And there's this like music cue that plays. And you know, one could interpret that as like glamorizing that kind of violence. Um, even if you come away from Goodfellas, understanding that Scorsese's position, if if it, one he could be said to have one, is that that lifestyle is bad. You can watch a scene like that, and like it can look cool. It can look like these people are badass and macho and alpha. That is not the case in The Irishman, in my opinion. Right? When you watch The Irishman and you watch the violence in The Irishman, it does not seem glamorous at all. It, it seems extremely. Uh, monotonous, uh, boring, yeah. soul-destroying, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that's yeah. just like one aspect of the film that I feel like is a real, if not evolution, then certainly a marked difference from from his earlier work. So. Yeah, he doesn't even seem to linger on the details of it. You know, in, in previous films, there's a look at this, you know, watch fingers crushed yeah. in a vice. Mm -hmm. uh, we will see it up close, the the horrifying nature of what this is. And yeah, on one hand, that's gratuitous and seems to be potentially, you know, glorifying it. On another, it is, you know, look at this, look at it. it, it it's horrifying, but don't turn away. This movie, it's abrupt. It's It comes out of nowhere. Almost every time it comes out of nowhere, it, it's over in a flash. It's pedestrian. Yeah. You know, it, it yeah. is, uh, there's nothing... There's no. It's almost always in a wide shot. You yeah, know, there's good, no good, good call about the wide shot. Like a lot of the times, you don't even you don't even see what's actually happening uh, because yeah. it's so the the angle is so wide, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, re really interesting point about about the violence in this film, Devendra. Let's go to you. What are your thoughts on the Irishman overall? 
Sure. I've only seen it once. Uh, I really want to have more time to dive into this movie. Yeah, well, then your opinion is invalid, sir. Yeah. You know what? You um, only saw it once, but it felt like more than once, right? It, it, feel, it certainly felt like an experience. So I saw this at the Nighthawk Theater here in Brooklyn, um, you know, not too far from my house. And I really appreciated being able to go to the theater and see that. Uh, I wish everybody had that. But, you know, opportunity. But I, I think also on Netflix, what was interesting over this past weekend is just seeing, yeah, the discourse, like you were saying, Dave, like the fact that, you know, this is a big, meaty, long movie that a lot of people are talking about. And I wonder if we would have had the same level of conversation with a, you know, a typical release. Uh, I really like the movie. I don't know if I love it, but I think it's really it's really interesting. And I really love movies um, that feel singular to the director. Like, I think Scorsese is the guy. He is pretty much the guy who can make this movie because this movie is sort of like, yeah, it is a reflection on the, like, glorifying mob stories he's he's told before, like Goodfellas, like Casino, and honestly, like, even Wolf of Wall Street is in here. Like, the glorification of bad people. Um, There's certainly condemnation in there, but probably not. Um, maybe not as much as people sometimes realize this movie is slow. It's pondering. It is about regret. This is a movie about, you know, somebody at the end of their life coming to terms with the fact that what they did has destroyed their soul in a way. And so much of the movie is about that. Um, I feel like the first two hours, it feels like something like a side story from Goodfellas, but then it gets to a point where we're seeing, you know, this character uh, in his older age more, and we're seeing the influence of the things he's done in his life and how that's affected his family. And I found that all really interesting. And the sort of things this character goes through towards the end, we'll talk about in spoilers. It does really relate a lot to silence, like this idea of, yeah, holding faith and, you know, I don't know, staying true to what you love. Um, There is a lot going on there. I find it all really fascinating. This is what you would call a shaggy movie. Where it does feel like there's a, there's sometimes a lot of stuff where yeah. if this was a theatrical release fully, you probably would have cut like half an hour at least of this movie. Because there are conversations that are interesting, but maybe not the most uh, dynamic conversations I, I've ever seen in films. And I don't think they really uh, unearth that much about these characters. It just feels like, you know, this is background chatter, the sort of things we loved in Goodfellas and honestly in Pulp Fiction and a lot of movies like this, too. Um I don't feel like a lot of that was very revealing. Um, yeah, we'll talk about the special effects and stuff. It didn't really bug me. There is one scene in particular where you clearly see that, oh man, this guy is not 30 something years old, just in the way he moves. And this is one something scene? I brought up. Huh? One scene? <laughs> there, well, there's one scene in particular where he's forced to do something physical. And I think it's really apparent there. Like, oh man, this is grandpa in a young suit basically trying to push and shove somebody um captain marvel had this a lot too so i think this is a really interesting you know um i don't know consequence of this age-defying makeup where you know they're de-aging the face they can't de-age the movements in the bodies completely or at least what the body is capable of uh so i found that kind of fascinating too but yeah there's a lot to chew on with this movie i really dug it jeff canada your thoughts on the irishman well, Dave, I guess you could say my <laughs> thoughts on the Irishman are best summed up in the form of a limerick. But I have to say, um, <laughs> this is the first time that I feel a little silly doing it because uh, <laughs> the first time we we literally have a uh, professor on, <laughs> and 
She made some really, really good points. Yes. Very well articulated. Very good. Very, very good. And I was sitting there <laughs> listening to that, no. looking at my limerick that I wrote. No. Jeff, let me, tell, let me tell you something before you go on. Yeah. One of my favorite professors, English professors ever, currently writes limericks and posts them on social media. And he's an amazing writer. So do not degrade the limerick. Okay, oh, well, not, what, what does that have to do okay. with Jeff, though? Yeah, I'm not degrading the, I'm not okay, degrading the form so much okay. as, uh, I mean, you're being very kind. Uh, you haven't heard the limerick yet. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, Melissa, that's by just... the way, this guest spot is going really well so far. Um, but, but anyway, Jeff, go on. What were you saying? Yeah, so uh, I'm just saying if I'd, I'd heard the last 20 minutes of discussion, I wouldn't have written this. But I here see. we go. Okay, okay. Here we go. <laughs> At the risk of coming off lazy, this is a typically well-made Scorsese. <laughs> Old ingredients you know, a good Italian combo, like my grandfather's beef bolognese. <laughs> that's, del- that's delightful, Jeff. I, I thought there was going to be great. some like, yeah, I thought there was going to be like bodily functions or something really embarrassing there. Yeah. No, that's that's a charming limerick, Jeff. Let's uh, practice Gene Shalek quote. It's great. <laughs> Melissa broke down the movie and. It's social context. She watched it twice and she had all these insights. And I'm like, it kind of reminds me of my grandpa's cooking. Um, but it does. I mean, I I had a really interesting experience watching this movie because it's the first of these that I've seen for the first time since having my kids. And I went, yeah, it's so interesting. I grew up first as of a, these. You mean Scorsese films or Scorsese films, sort of you know Italian mobster movies, uh, that sort of cultural Italian thing on screen. And well, you know, I didn't grow up in the mob or anything, but <laughs> this is the culture that I grew up in. My my grandfather, my dad's dad, and my dad's mom were my his mom was conceived in Italy. My dad, my dad's dad, my grandfather was born in Italy, lived there till he was fourteen. My aunts and uncles, that whole thing is what's in these movies. I mean, take out the sort of mobstery stuff, although supposedly I've heard stories, but that's neither here nor there. But like the the, the food and the eating and the way people communicate and the the kinds of faces and people in, in these movies is my family. It, it is – I see my family in it very strongly and it, it, it feels very um, – familiar and warm to me these movies even though they're violent and they're horrible and these people are horrible there's the culture the food the the kinds of decorations in their homes you know basically this this movie is your crazy rich asians is what yes 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 (laughs) and you know and and it it certainly um brings home the fact that representation on screen is is important isn't it a touchstone we even even negative you know, representation in some, some senses. Um, but the reason I bring that up is to say that my son and daughter are not going to have that at all. Like that's not, they don't, they're never going to know my grandparents, my dad and his cousins are a little bit like that. But I turned to my wife as we were watching this and I was like, this, the, the touchstone that I have to this is completely lost one generation later. Like my, my son and daughter are not going to feel that it's just weird. I know this is a very self-indulgent way to go into this movie, but I was struck by that. Um, because I, I, 
really enjoy Scorsese's indulgence in, in it. And it felt like classic Coke, you know, it felt like classic Scorsese, you know, like we're going back and sort of talking about his era, his childhood, the people in his world, you know, it just felt like him doing his greatest hits a little bit. And I, I really enjoyed this movie. I, I made a lot of jokes as we were starting about the length of the movie, but I never felt long to me. Um, it does feel slowly paced, but it feels intentional. It never felt plotting or I never, my mind never wandered. I was in it and it isn't, it's a strange thing. You know, we'll talk more in depth about the de-aging of De Niro. I never bought that he was any younger than he is now at any point. (laughs) Um, but it's interesting to me how good he is on screen still, you know, you watch him make a guest appearance on Saturday night live and he can barely read the cue card and he, he seems so awkward and, and yet you put him on screen in a movie like this and it's extraordinary. It's, it's so real and grounded and connected and, and Pesci's amazing in this movie as well. I mean, Joe Pesci, I haven't seen him in anything in a while and it's just a reminder of how good he is. Um, so it's fun to watch these actors work. It's fun to watch this filmmaker work. You know, you guys were talking about how if this was released in the cinema, it would have to be much shorter. And I sort of had the inverse feeling where this feels to me like Scorsese with the gloves taken off, with the handcuffs take, taken off. You right, know, it's, right. Yeah. It's like this is his death no stranding. Doubt, well, yeah. no, yes, exactly. There's no doubt to me that Goodfellas would have been three and a half hours long if he could have done that. Right. If he had had a Netflix yeah. back then. Yeah. Goodfellas would totally have been this length. This feels like him totally at home, comfortable. And we'll get to spoilers, but there is a a very extended sequence toward the end of this movie that really is the climax where he builds tension in such a masterful way. And it's slow and is nothing overtly said to you about what's going to happen or what even might happen. There's no overt threat Really, it's just this pedestrian, matter-of-fact feeling of ominous tension. And it, it is, it's so different than the way most movies do that. And I found it so interesting. And, and it is because he's allowed to indulge. He's allowed to slow things down and have long sequences. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating movie, one I really, really enjoyed I don't think it is on par with the Goodfellas for me or even a casino, but it's, I think Melissa made such interesting points about how it's, it's a, it's a more mature, different view of that same kind of material. And I think in its own way, it really stands beside those films as a different view into that mentality. And, And for that, I'm really glad we get it. I'm glad we get to see this movie in this medium. Like it's such an interesting thing to give him the keys to Netflix and say, make whatever you want to make. And that could have totally failed, right? That could have oftentimes when an auteur gets no rules, you know, gets a carte blanche, it feels like they benefited from previous films of having a frame and needing to work within a certain rule set. This, in this case, I think it actually created something extraordinary and really different i I liked it a lot Mm -hmm. yeah i have to say uh i I was quite a fan as well because as melissa teed up like this movie feels like a response to 
you know, many of the films that he's made specifically around the gangster lifestyle. Um, it's interesting that he is the one filmmaker that is most closely associated with that genre. But mm-hmm. the guy has such a diverse filmography. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he does. He's made Silence, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, you know, Bringing, uh, bringing Out Your Dead, right? The Nicolas Cage movie. Um, Age of Innocence. <laughs> Age of Innocence. You know, yeah. like he's just, but it's just like, no, like a lot of people think of him as the, the gangster uh, filmmaker and. Comedian? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Kings of Comedy, right? Um, yeah, Kings of Comedy. Yeah, yeah, King that's Comedy. what I mean. King of Comedy. And so it's, uh, it's, inter- it's interesting that like th- that's the genre that kind of defines him. At the same time, this is kind of his response to that. This is kind of his, uh, his answer to the question what happens when those people get old? I think, yeah, right? Yeah. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and I, I also, it also feels like something only a filmmaker who's had this much experience, right? Like somebody who has lived yeah. a life can yeah. really look back at this. Um, maybe, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like what movies about older experiences really get it right. Maybe The Old Man, The Gun feels like David Lowry yeah. did pretty well there. But this this mm-hmm. is so specific. It feels, again, only, only Scorsese could have really brought this movie together like this. It's interesting, Dave, that you frame it that way because it it occurs to me that the movie makes such a point over and over and over again to reveal to us all the people that didn't get old in the movie. You know, it keeps keeps telling us how these people died and when they died. And then the few that actually reach old age it's an interesting... Uh, It's not... not, It doesn't go great for them. You know, it's not like they're living amazing lives. And I think like... Uh, I'm going to spoil the end of Goodfellas. So if you haven't seen Goodfellas, tune out for whatever. But uh, the end of Goodfellas, it, it ends with Henry Hill is uh, in the witness protection program, right? And he gets a newspaper from his front door. And then you kind of see these like guns. I think you see gunshots from Joe Pesci before it goes to credits, is my, if I recollect correctly, because I, I saw the movie rather recently. And this movie answers the question, and then what? You know, yeah. like what yeah. happens to Henry Hill mm-hmm. after like his life kind of stabilizes a little bit, and uh, this is one version of that. Now, obviously, the main character of this movie doesn't go into witness protection. I'm not trying to say like it's a direct continuation or anything like that, um, but I'm just saying this movie asks the question. You know, like when people rise and fall in the gangster genre, their lives don't end there. Sometimes, right. sometimes, sometimes they do. <laughs> sometimes they do. Right. But sometimes they don't. Um, before we get to spoilers, the only other thing I want to mention, I read the Empire online uh, review about uh, with Scorsese, which is very interesting. This is the interview, by the way, that spawned the Marvel dialogue. He, he makes his remarks mm-hmm. about, uh, about Marvel in the Empire interview. And uh, it's, it's interesting to read like that uh, early on in his career, uh, he really, really struggled. You know, like he really struggled to get things made. He had already made things like Raging Bull... Um, and King of Comedy, but like uh, he he struggled to get the Last Temptation of Christ off the ground, and it wasn't until the Color of Money in 1986 that things really started to turn around, according to this piece. Then he made Last Temptation of Christ and Goodfellas, and like really, like that's when it's like okay, that kind of catapulted him really into another uh, another level. But even up until this day. You know, he could not get The Irishman made at a one of the classic Hollywood studios. He had to get it done at Netflix because Paramount didn't want to pay the 175 to 200 million dollars that this movie cost. And so this is a filmmaker who has always faced rejection and has always like had struggles to make his movies even after the massive success and like medium defining career that he's had. 
so I think it's just both humbling to to realize that, and, but also kind of like you're seeing a master at work when he's making this. I agree with Devendra. This is, in my uh, he said shaggy. I would call it lumpy. I think it's kind of a lumpy film. <laughs> yeah. It's like, Old it's man like, lumpy. It's yeah. like a pair of cargo shorts. It's kind of lumpy, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I, <laughs> I think you're just think... describing De Niro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Melissa, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it, like, especially on my, I would have said that on my first watch, mm-hmm. but I really think that watching it a second time, it, all of these things are just, they just click into click into place. I think thematically and just even plot wise and, and character references. So I don't know. I, I think I would have felt like it was Shaggy the first time, but the second time, I, I honestly can't think of anything. I, I just don't that... think there's any way that I can watch this movie and think like, oh, yeah, he was he was responsible for the Bay of Pigs. Like that that would be a thing that I thought was <laughs> integral to the story. Anyway, um, we we should get into spoilers soon. But your, your point is yeah. taken. I think a lot of people watch this movie and it's like it's like telling Mozart, like, you should have used less notes. You know, I, I, I agree that like. Many people watch this and they find the length works for them. For me, it didn't. You know, I'm willing to revisit this movie again and and, and go from there. Uh, but Wait, in any case, let me I ask think, you this yep, question real quick, Dave. You saw this in a theater, right? I saw this in a theater and then I watched sections of it at home. I I wonder. I don't think there's a definitive answer to this question, but I wonder if there is a different feeling about the length when you watch it in the theater versus watching it at home. Oh, definitely. Because, because yeah. I. I I did not have that feeling at all at home, but I also like paused it a couple of times, got up and got some food and came back and unpaused it. You know, it, right. it's it was not, like what we talked about on the show last week is making mm-hmm. a sandwich and taking a dump. Those are the things you want to do <laughs> when you're watching Scorsese. Movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had to prepare for this movie like Avengers Endgame, you know, like I had to like watch what I was drinking. I successfully did not have to run to the bathroom. And yeah, I'm also at a point in my life where I just like accept the fact that maybe during movies I really love, I have to run to the bathroom. Otherwise, I will not be able to keep watching it. Those are the calculations you do seeing a movie in the theater. Yeah, it's more know. stressful. It's more yeah. stressful. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, uh, agreed, Jeff. It's a, it's a very different experience, and I think you really feel the length. And maybe, but that's obviously part of the point is you're supposed to feel the length because you're feeling yes. the length of this person's lifetime and his series of decisions and reflecting on them with him. Uh, anyway, it's it, the the nesting doll experience of the narrative is, is kind of interesting. It's like almost like um, reminded me a little of like the Prestige, you know, like you start yeah. like mm-hmm. and, and later in this yeah, person's like, life, and then you like flash two flashbacks deep, like right. five minutes into this movie, <laughs> yeah, not right. three flashbacks deep. I would say you go yeah. back in time, then you go back in time again, then you go back in time again. So it's like what you're three flashbacks deep, like ten minutes into the movie. It, so anyway. Uh, and you know that time slows down when you go three <laughs> levels deep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in any case, let's get to spoilers for The Irishman starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. I want to talk a little bit about the digital de-aging. Melissa, how convinced were you that we were seeing uh, old Robert De Niro and slightly <laughs> less old Robert De Niro? <laughs> uh, I I think it, it doesn't really work in the sense that you're not thinking about the fact that it is like makeup yep. and de-aging. But I think I kind you, of you mean you mean you that. you do think about it like you when you're watching it you're, it. you're thinking yes. about it yes. and if it was working well you wouldn't be thinking about it 
Right. Well, no, I mean, I think I was thinking about it, but something about the thinking about it worked for me. Yeah. Beca- because I, I feel like it, this is kind of an, I mean, it's like this, like you were saying about it being nested. It's, it's like this old man thinking about back on his life. And in a way there is this old man contained in the young man. Hmm. And the, the physicality of that, I think, is really interesting. And I don't know if that was Scorsese thinking, oh, great, it won't look, you know, exactly like they're young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this will be perfect. But we won't I, have this grosser fight go on right. too long, just, <laughs> right. just long enough. <laughs> exactly. But but I think it really worked for me because I think the film is about the this man who, when he when we start, when we see him from the beginning of his mobster career as it were he looks like an older man like death is contained mm. in him in, in when he even starts it's such a cool way to look at it that's such a yeah. very very cool perspective i think uh bilge ibiri actually had the same opinion about this at vulture i don't know if you saw he had a piece mm. called how no. is the de-aging in the irishman incredibly impressive he actually makes a point that like that because of the fact that you know it's old de niro in there that that yeah. like gives the movie some point, like because the aging is the de aging is not convincing. That that is what makes the movie have its power is because, uh, you know that that you, yeah. you it, it feels more like basically like De Niro wearing an incredibly impressive like digital mask versus. Yeah, I don't think it's even that impressive, honestly. <laughs> well, it's not that impressive. I think the old age stuff that they do is is very good, but at no point yeah. there's a couple of moments at the beginning where. They're like, hey, kid, come in here. We, you know, yeah, you guys, yeah. And I'm yeah. like, kid? He's 45. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's supposed yeah. to be that old. He's supposed to be that old already. This is not like Henry Hill age person. right? He's already 45 at the beginning of the, uh, you know, in the youngest point in the movie. So uh, right. put, uh, putting aside the the World War, I think, two part or whatever it was. But oh, yeah. um, putting that aside, I mean, he's already supposed to be 45. So he's not supposed to be that young. Uh, but th- that being said, Jeff, I mean, I agree with you. Like, it didn't really work for me like i was extremely distracted to the film's detriment in my opinion um mm-hmm. but I, I there's many people more than one person at this point have now made the claim that like actually the fact that you know it's old de niro in there that that actually makes the movie better than if for instance they had gotten a young body double and put de niro's face on him right i mean i think the yeah. way melissa expressed it like containing an old man containing that sort of note of of entropy <laughs> you know that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. death that looming death is always there i mean i don't want to say de niro is close to death i'm not implying that but it, it's an such a fascinating perspective and i think it it changes my negative feelings about it because i think that it did have an impact i but you know physically he's just not up to the task of, of, of but i it didn't ruin the movie for me in any sense it just felt like it was, a distraction. Guys, it was a distraction. Who do you me. think you're kidding? Like, who do, yeah. who do you think you're fooling here? You're not fooling anybody. But I think perhaps giving the movie a, a bit of more credit in light yeah. of what Melissa said, maybe they didn't intend to fool anybody. Maybe that's the whole point. Right. Yeah. There is a sense of fadedness that hangs over the the entire thing, too. This kind of it's like this, this, this determinism. And they are all all headed toward this journey that they can't. Um, escape. And then that final shot is that's where we were heading the whole time. But yeah, I, I, yeah. go ahead, Devendra. Uh, I mean, yeah, that determinism, I think, is a good way to put it. It's interesting to me to, that this whole movie is basically people making these decisions and certainly De Niro's character of just like, 
you know, escalating bad things, you know, like, oh, I want to be friends with this guy. I'm going to steal some of this meat and get it over to him and gets to a point where they, re- you know, they reveal he basically has killed people in the army, you know, in service. Like, so that that aspect of his soul has kind of been killed off already. Mm-hmm. Um, so being asked to kill somebody is no big deal. It's all it's all just kind of like right. another job. It's another day at work basically right. and that whole perspective that they go through is really interesting i do i do think the idea that you know death is contained within them it's very poetic i'm not sure if it's always the best explanation for what we're seeing but i feel like any solution we talked about this during uh, doctor sleep right uh certain things that happened in that movie could have involved you know digital recreations or what that movie did and yeah, that's either cast younger actors or do this de-aging and both sides i think we we clearly see upsides and downsides this is really interesting this movie uh made me think of another soon to be classic of cinema gemini man um (laughs) another movie where you know it's not a classic yet just keep waiting it will be (laughs) trust me um yeah that's another movie about an older actor certainly not as old as de niro but will smith confronting his younger self and kind of like, you know, the regret, the regret he's lived as an assassin too. like the, the, these movies are kind of related in that way. It's kind of funny. Yeah. So it sounds like mixed bag. The de-aging was for us. Uh, I'm in the camp of it's a distraction. The, the scene that we were all talking about earlier was the scene when Robert De Niro as his younger 45 year old self is supposed to brutalize someone at the butcher shop. I think it was right. Like he's supposed to like go and kick this guy's ass and it just, does not look convincing. It looks painfully unconvincing, actually. And that kind of stuff, it does kind of take me out of the film. You know, like, I want yeah. to not be thinking about, like, if they had used a younger person for, for just that scene. I'm not even saying the whole movie, just that scene. Because yeah. you what want we have to, some people. Yeah. You want yeah. to retain De Niro's performance, like the facial expressions and all that stuff. Uh, but for the physicality, sometimes it just doesn't work. And that is uh, a disappointment for me. I know for some people... Uh, it worked, and and you know that's cool. So, can I uh, ask you guys a question? Yeah. Um, the the framing of the film as a discussion in in his old age mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. someone to who we someone we don't know, like the right. the idea that the movie starts as this confessional to nobody. Yeah, and I think that, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I I wonder, Melissa, as somebody who watched the movie twice, how you feel about that. Because by the time we get back to him at that age, it's pretty clear there is no one. There is there is no yeah. one that he's unloading this to. And it felt to me like a strange loose end or unpaid off bookend in some way. That it just didn't feel it's like, why did we need that at the beginning to get us here? Yeah. I don't know. How did you feel about it? I mean, I, I I had two thoughts about that. I mean, I think one thing is I just wondered initially if he was thinking of the book, because uh, isn't the original mm. book um, of the reporter or the writer who was interviewing the yes. um, the real character? So I just kind of wondered if that was sort of the setup. Yeah. But then I also feel like there is so much in this film that is related to uh, Catholicism and faith mm-hmm. and the whole idea of God. And I just kind of want the whole idea of confession, I think, ties to maybe who is he speaking to? I mean, is he speaking to God or is there no one there? And then that whole scene at the end where he and the priest 
are talking with each other. And then the priest um, ends up leaving and he's just there by himself looking out. Is there anyone there or not? Um, which I, kind of has an interesting tie back to um, there's a shot of Peggy in the middle of the film when she is looking through the door at um, her father getting his guns together to go shoot. I can't remember what see. Oh, he's going to shoot crazy Joe, I think. Um, but it, it's like this idea of Peggy in some ways, I feel like she is sort of the, the a conscious or conscience or a, a God kind of figure. And it, is it God through the door? I mean, I just feel like there is something about speaking to God or speaking to the nothingness that he's playing with there. That that yeah. that really kind of works for me. That that is a very charitable interpretation. Another interpretation could be they just started with this framing device of this guy telling the story to an author and just kind of jettisoned it by the end of the film. <laughs> you know, they just kind of <laughs> forgot about it by the end of the film. Uh, but I, you know, I think you're, the way you put it is also very good. I, I I think like I have some issues with the way that this movie invokes the idea of truth, um, and I guess. Now would be a good time to talk about that. Like, we've already talked about how we all think overall the movie is pretty good. Um, but in case people don't know, basically none of the film is true in terms of like who killed Jimmy Hoffa, um, who killed uh, the person in the uh, Umberto's, right? Um, uh, Crazy Joe, right? Crazy Joe Gallo. Right. Uh, it, 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 there's basically like no truth to, to any of it, um, according to people who are. Um, uh, conversant and knowledgeable about the thing. And Slate.com has a great article called The Lies of the Irishman that lays bare how uh, this book that this movie is based off of called I Heard You Paint Houses is a festival of lies. And uh, that, uh, you know, and, and I should also point out, like, in general, I understand movies need to take creative liberties, right? Like, um, I think it was... It was uh, the Steve Jobs movie with Aaron Sorkin, where like one of the character, one of the people who was in the movie, like whose whose life was chronicled in the film, said to Aaron Sorkin after he came out of watching it, like none of that happened, all of it was true. You know, like he's saying, like those events did not actually take place, but that yeah. he, that Aaron Sorkin was mm -hmm. able to capture uh, a certain essence of what actually happened. This is not right. that at all. This is like. This is, does not even capture the essence of what happened, right? <laughs> this is just like all complete lies. And so I think that I'm, I'm only bothered by it by, to one degree, which is that I don't think you can invoke truth and then like tell a story that's just completely lies. Because like, uh, you know, Jeff, you pointed out at various points in the movie, it's like, hey, you know, Joe Smith died at, of old age or, you know, a nail bomb exploded under his car at the age of 33, you know, whatever. And the the implication there is these are real people, right? Jimmy I don't Hoffa, know. I don't. It... I don't know if I agree with that because I mean, yes, of course, these are real people, and Jimmy Hoffa is a real person, and these are, you know, we're talking about Kennedy, and the it, this is a, a history uh, that is the canvas upon which the story is told. But mm -hmm. I feel like that same kind of thing happens in Goodfellas, where it's like, you know. Uh, yeah, Jimmy two times is uh, he was killed in you know, thirty years later or whatever. It's like it's just this. Yeah, but showing the consequences of this life. It's not like mm -hmm. here are yeah, facts. Yeah. That well, are... Uh, well, a, a, I disagree with how it's presented in the film, and B, uh, Goodfellas is 
way more truthful about what actually happened to those people. Like, they, it, it, Goodfellas could be arguably seen as a almost nearly completely truthful doc. Like, it takes uh, take some liberty, certainly, but, like, most of the facts are true in Goodfellas. So I, I actually don't think this, this qualifies as, like, being similar to Goodfellas. I just um, don't think that... I, I just didn't approach this movie as showing me a chronicle of an authentic yeah. set of events. It just felt like... It felt like a... It felt like it was using history as a canvas upon which to tell a fictional story to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people view it that way. You know, I think I'm just saying if it had been if it had been completely like like more like Shakespeare, I think is what you're saying, right? Like yeah. Shakespeare uses yeah. like real life yeah, figures, yeah. right? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could buy that argument, but I just and I think that I haven't seen a lot of people saying like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this movie reveals who killed Jimmy Hoffa. You know, I think like <laughs> a lot of people are going into it with the correct amount of skepticism. It just kind of gets my goat a little bit when they invoke real life history. But then like the movie is just complete fabrication. Uh, it's not it's not even like it's not even like 80 percent true. And they took yeah. some liberty. It's like. 10% true, you know what I mean? This like, goes back to our review of that Transformers movie where they uh, <laughs> faked the moon landing because they found a Transformers there. And uh, Jeff never, you know, Dave, you never let that go. Yeah, basically. this is this is about as truthful as that, you know? Exactly. So, But I don't think, I don't, it has the veneer, you know, it has the veneer of truth to it. Anyway, yeah, we I don't need to talk about it anymore. That they, yeah. it is, I did think it was weird that they said that Bumblebee killed at Jimmy Hoffa. It was weird. That, that was an odd moment in the show. Anyway, explain it's clear a lot. none of you share my concern with this, but I, I would no, not I, be No, I hear to, you. I do think yeah. a lot of people watching this movie may come away with it, with that idea. And yeah. that's it. Like, just to see this thought in their head that's planted. And it's like, oh, that's what happened to, to J- Jimmy Hoffa, and I'm going to go on with my life. There's something not great about that. Uh, the movie does feel like it's trying to be as... As a document, as a historical document, as something like Goodfellas, even. Um, let, me, let me ask you yeah. this, Dave. Do you do you have the same beef with JFK, um, the Oliver Stone film? I guess it's hard for me to answer that question because, uh, I, I guess maybe I, I wasn't around really. I wasn't really commenting on movies when that movie came out, so I don't know what the dialogue around Which it was. Entirely conspiracy theories, basically. Right, right, oh yeah. Exactly. So then the yeah. answer to your question is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I think that movie, I mean, that movie actually thinks it's telling the truth. I don't think Scorsese thinks he's actually revealing anything. I think Oliver Stone right. did think he was revealing everything, but yes. it was also a pack of horse shit, you know, it was, <laughs> but, but I, I, I kind of take I, both I mean, those movies in the same, in the same vein of like, yeah, this is a fun View, a fun use of this actual historical event to tell, uh, you know, a kind of a, a yarn, weave a yarn. Yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. if if this movie was done using completely made up characters, you know, like there is no Jimmy Hoffa, there is no actual real life people, I'd be like, great, no, no issue with it whatsoever. But they they use these real characters because I think they want to invoke <laughs> right this veneer of truth that they it does not live up to. Um, but it's I, a tantalizing mystery, right? The sure. who killed Jimmy Hoffa is a tantalizing mystery uh, that's real and is a fun jumping off point for speculation and fiction, right? right? That this movie adds nothing to the conversation of in terms of the actual... In the same way that JFK, like JFK is just as fanciful, you know, but I I think I probably could think of three or four other films that do this similar things with historical events where, and you you brought up Shakespeare, right? I mean, Richard III Mm -hmm. was nothing like that. There was actual Mm -hmm. Richard III, right? But I think historical fiction is an entire genre that is 
I, I think it, it's yeah, a little yeah, weird yeah. for you to paint that entire concept as deceitful or or um, misleading. I don't think that anybody's attempting to convince you of this history. All right. Well, yeah. Agree to disagree, <laughs> but can, I, can I, I do want to. Yeah, uh, let me just say one last thing about yeah, yeah. it, which is that I, I think it is uh, this article is really good and it, it's really fascinating. And what's hilarious about this article in Slate, which we'll link to in the show notes, is that uh, there is a guy who actually like did research, interviewed uh, hundreds of people for the book. Oh, and he says he says, uh, "quote." Truthfully, I'm upset because I spent my entire career investigating this case, interviewed over a thousand people, and I have a legitimate claim to having made an important contribution. And then a guy who wrote a one-source book based on the word of a convicted felon and proven liar gets everything. The best-selling book, the best-selling yeah. book, the movie star treatment that comes to very few, but every author wants. Yes, I am bitter about this. End quote. That guy should be angry. I feel like that guy deserves that. I am mildly angry on his behalf. That's all I have to say. I hear you. I, yeah. But I feel By like, the way, I mean, what's the difference? between i mean <laughs> any any depiction any biopic is has the same issues right yeah, yeah. I mean, versus ferrari right i mean like sure. I, I don't i just simply don't agree with what you're saying because i think that like those movies even if they took liberties and changed facts and blended some characters into one they fundamentally were trying to get at some truth of those stories and this but, movie just is is not it, it is complete fabrication. Like it's not. It's Ford versus Ferrari. That race actually occurred. You right. Know what I mean? We have. We know. We know <laughs> the 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 difference here is that these. This is about a mystery. This is about a, a mystery that no one is ever going to get to the d discernible truth of. So the mm -hmm. movie inherently is talking about something that is speculative. Maybe if it was more like Zodiac, though. Like Zodiac is inherently about an unsolvable yes. crime. Great right? example and of how Zodiac to that situation. is the movie of yeah. like, yeah, a very long movie about this this slog to solve this mystery. The trouble with this movie is that yeah, it's presenting the answer to yeah. you directly. Everyone just and, needs to make a Zodiac yeah. is really but, the solution. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But don't you think it's partly a commentary on Frank himself? I mean, I think there is some level of our I mean, how much are we how much is he supposed to be kind of a reliable narrator in in that sense? How much do we take of what he's saying is kind of through the lens mm. of his memory? And how much is he, you know, just considering what he did more important than it actually was? Um, and I just think, I mean, this movie isn't really about Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, it's it's about um, Scorsese reflecting on gangster movies. Yeah. Really? I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm happy to move on to another topic. But <laughs> yeah. do, do not interpret my moving on as I agree with you on this point. I, I was um, half expecting <laughs> the way at the end of the movie. I was half expecting somebody to be like, "So, Frank, do you do you expect me to believe this?" Like, is anyone? <laughs> right. I, I do <laughs> think somebody to say something like that. I, I do think that like one of the most moving scenes, the scene in this movie that completely brought the movie home for me, uh, and I still I still like the movie despite having some problems with it. But the scene that brought them is when the priest is talking with him at the end, and he's yeah. trying to like convince him to confess, and Frank is just like, "I I I don't even know." He's like trying to feel bad about his crimes is the best yeah. way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't. He cannot summon yeah. guilt or remorse. And that is just, even at the end of his life, even like no one gives a shit what he's saying or not saying. Like even when he has nothing left, he has no one left. He, he can't, his, his, uh, his sense of being a person of conscience has just completely departed from him. 
it's absolutely tragic. It is like mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. That, that also, scene, that performance, yeah. it's amazing. So Also that phone call. I feel like that phone call was also another one where it's like, that that is so hard to of Joe. him yeah to Joe. to Joe yeah 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 of like oh yeah 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 when that is rough when when yeah. it's like he's tr- he's like he's he trying know. to come to terms with it. like something in this person's brain is fundamentally broken right like yeah yeah and yeah. and and you're seeing like the the machine the machinery of his mind just short circuit in front of you it's yeah. it's an amazing performance by De Niro here and it's just like. Um, yeah. For for those scenes alone, it's like that is worth the three and a half hour journey, in my opinion. So also, and it's interesting too. Mm-hmm. Looking at De Niro's career, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but it feels like the last decade has been almost a parody of himself. You know, yeah. and sure. kudos yeah, yeah. to him for for like taking divergent things and and you know doing comedies and do, you know like, that's kind of I think that's kind of cool and that he's willing to play around with his persona a lot, but. The fact that he's still capable of this is amazing to me. Like he, yeah. it's, th- that's the De Niro of the seventies and eighties. You know, that's that's the kind of powerhouse performances that made him into one of America's great actors, and it's still there. It's still he still has it. It's it was really yeah. cool to see. Yeah. The, the thing about that phone call, by the way, uh, another element. This is a guy coming from a generation that doesn't know what to do with their feelings, and yeah. certainly men knowing what to do with their feelings. So a guy trying to console the wife of a friend who he happened to kill, there is, or in this story, there is so much going on in that scene. Like I found that pretty enticing mm-hmm. and and compelling. Yeah. And and he does actually make in that scene with the priest that you're talking about, Dave, he he actually has that line, what kind of man makes a phone call like that? Yeah. Like the, pre- yeah. the priest, and, and it, it is and does, stunning yeah. because he knows, he knows that there's a problem in his soul, right? Yeah. But he doesn't know how to, fix it it is really profound and speaking of uh amazing performances uh jeff you've already talked about how good pesci is in this movie yeah he's so um, good. I, first of all it's amazing pesci has basically been in retirement uh for many years yes. uh, according to the new york times quote he went into semi-retirement to focus on jazz under the pseudonym joe dogs uh <laughs> as well as his family and golf as he, one does <laughs> as one does <laughs> Even Louis C.K. at the height of his pre-scandal fame couldn't coax Pesci to work with him. Instead, Pesci told him he should quit doing stand-up because he wasn't funny, end quote. Um, so, Pesci. like, he Pesci. was out of Pesci the game. Ahead of the curve. <laughs> so, Pesci uh, was out of the game, and then he was brought back for this extremely restrained performance. One of my disappointments with the film, actually, is that, like, I feel like when Al, De- uh, Al, uh, Al Pacino arrives as Jimmy Hoffa, like, that whole relationship just, like, dominates the film. And yeah. I thought, like, like this Joe Pesci uh, friendship with Robert De Niro's character felt like it was such a critical part of Robert De Niro's character's life. And I felt a little disappointed we didn't see more of Joe Pesci because he's so good in this movie. There's a moment when he's, like, cooking salad in a kitchen and he's like, Ugh. don't call him. You know, and I'm just like, yeah. chills, <laughs> chills Dude. down my spine. He is He's amazing. He deserves an Academy Award nomination for this, I think. And he's he's so good. And it's so different. It's like Mm -hmm. if you cast this movie in your head, you cast De Niro as that character. Right. You know, you you don't cast Pesci as that character. And he's so good. And as you said, restrained and and just in command at all times. There's that scene at the at the at the wedding where he pulls him aside and he's he's like, it is it's what it is. You know, like mm-hmm. that whole oh, not yeah. saying that, it. That's an amazing conversation. It's yeah. incredible. 
And I also want to talk a little bit about the the entire sequence that leads up to the Hoffa killing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's so good. Oh, dude, <laughs> the the breakfast with Pesci, <laughs> yep, where he's like, yep. "You're gonna get on a plane," and like how it slowly dawns on him everything that's happening. The 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 car ride, the 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 shots of him just like getting into the plane, getting out of the plane, like how just fucking pedestrian it it all is, just how mundane and matter of fact everything mm-hmm. is and then they put his the dude's son is the dude that picks <laughs> him oh, up like so how, brutal. How, yes it is it is so messed up and he's and he doesn't know that was going to happen he's like what are you here for <laughs> right. and then he's he has to sit next to him the whole time yeah. it's like and we talk about fish for a while yeah yeah, oh. <laughs> right. yeah. and like how blithely unaware hoffa is where he's just like chewing people out not realizing he's about to get whacked it's it's brutal and then back in the car back in the plane then back in the car with pesci and nothing said they say nothing oh it's so one of my favorite parts of that scene by the way is pesci saves him cereal at the beginning yeah like he's still he pours it but he yeah he (laughs) saves it pours it like a like a good big brother basically like it's so it's so caring Yeah. yeah yeah It, yeah, dude, that that whole sequence is, I think, masterful. It, it is mm-hmm. so, it is so tense. And and why? Why is it te- like it is? <laughs> yeah. it's ominous. There's no music it's, or anything like that. Like, oh, yeah, it's not no like, music. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah. no there's no turning of the screws. It's yeah. just yeah. showing you the steps that it takes to do this. Yeah. And and in showing you, you are completely invested and completely, you know, emotionally wrung out by the whole thing. It's. It's cra- and then getting there and the dude is like putting plastic down on the floor and then when they get back and those oh. guys are gone and he has to do it himself it's like oh yeah. man oh, it's there's so- also the yeah. scene when he opens the door and uh, Jimmy Hoffa's character Jimmy Hoffa walks in and he looks at the living room there's no one there I felt like that he scene knows. was a, was a yeah, yeah a he knows yeah. but I felt like it was yeah. a callback to. Uh, the scene in Goodfellas when Joe Pesci's character is executed mm. right like yeah. he's about to get made he opens the door and then you see nothing. Just yeah. a yeah. living room. It's like the last thing you see before you die. So uh, it's so heartbreaking. His whole like, why didn't you come here at two? You said you're going to be here at two. Yeah. Oh, well, it's so well, heartbreaking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, sorry. We had, you know, we, we had to do some things. He's like, no, but you said you were going to be here at two. Like everybody knows that you have to be on time in my life. And I, right? He, like I yeah. trust yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah so good. So and good. he Hoffa has that line too earlier on when he says, "I want to be able to trust someone who I can." who won't knife me from behind. And just yeah. when he turns and he's, you know, his back is to Frank and that shoots him in the back, shoots yeah. him in the, yes. Yeah. You know, I don't think you even see it when he first does it. That's how like, we were talking about wide angle shots. Right? Like he, he's like obscured by the, he is. the door. door. You don't even see him. Yeah. 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 So I have a question for you about that. Is there's at the very, very beginning of the movie. Um, Frank says, I paint houses. There's a cut to a gun and then he shoots someone. Is that Hoffa? I think it, it's like in the first two to three minutes of the movie. Interesting. I don't know. That yeah. would take a second viewing yeah. for sure. Yeah. Another viewing. I, yeah. I think it is. But I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, Melissa, let me ask you a question. Um, the, you know, we we have uh, been talking about some of the discourse around the movie, and actually, you had a really pretty brilliant Twitter thread about this topic that uh, I, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about Anna Paquin's role in this film and how yes. she has. Almost no lines in this movie. And a lot of people, been, been a lot of talk about how in this movie, the role of women is 
completely subsumed. Like, for instance, as an example, Robert De Niro's character uh, like divorces his wife in an offhanded statement, you know, earlier yeah. on in the film, right? So <laughs> like they all gone. go bowling together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so it's like the the movie kind of like erases almost nearly erases women's role from the story. And Anna Paquin has almost no lines and there's a lot of criticism like why have Anna Paquin, a very talented actress, to appear in this film if she's not gonna get to say anything. Um and I really <laughs> I think Mark Kermode said it really well. Uh, I was listening to his review of this film, and he's like, a lot of people criticize Anna Paquin for not having, or the the role, or Martin Scorsese, or the writer, Stephen Zalian, for like not giving Anna Paquin's character any lines. But in a sense, not speaking is a big part of what she's supposed to do in this film. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. And like, That is yeah. the role. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, the role is not mm-hmm. speaking, and it is the fact that she is not speaking that is, uh, yeah. it drives kind of this per- this point home of, of the, the damage that the character has done to his family. But It's, it's right. pure judgment. It's yeah. pure, right. yeah, like, yeah. yeah, that disconnect yeah. is so important. It reminds me, especially towards the end, it is sort of like the depiction, I think, of the Madonna in, like, classic Christian art or Catholic art, too, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you, you get a lot of that. It's silent judgment. And that kills him inside. And there's that scene in the bank that I feel like really drives that home. Oh, too, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, very good. good so, yeah. Um, Melissa, your thoughts on Anna Paquin's role and the role of women more generally in this film? Yeah, so um, going into it again, I was just so suspicious. I'd heard, of course, some of the discourse without trying to be too spoiled by it. But I'd heard, again, there's no lines. And people are saying, no, 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 It's she's really important, her role. And um, so I was very suspicious of it. And I think even probably even three hours into the movie, I was still not sure I was on board with the the fact of how sidelined really the women are. Um, but I, I think the, the film is the, the, the women are excluded, but that is a part of, um, the condemnation, I think of Frank, um, and of, of this whole mobster lifestyle. And, and the film very carefully does show us that these women are here. So even that opening the, the beginning scene, right. Where Frank and Russell are going on this car trip with their wives, Rini and Carrie, um, they, the wives initially, I think, seem a, a little bit petty. They keep wanting to stop, but, um, and then there are, um, but we always, we know that they're there. They're, they're part of it. Um, and then of course we have, you know, Peggy and the, the constant, the watching that she's, she's doing. And, and, um, that really great scene too, with Joe Hoffa when she's sitting in the car and she's afraid to turn on the key, but all these things didn't really convince me that this, that was justified, that women were really not a, a part of the film. I think until, that scene with Frank's daughter, who you don't even, I had to look up her name on IMDb. It's Dolores. She's, she has really barely been in the movie at all, but she's, Frank is sitting across from her and he's upset that Peggy has, you know, rejected him essentially at the, at the bank. And he, he says, you know, I did this basically because, um, I was trying to protect you. And she, her face is just, are you kidding me? And it's basically her face is kind of some of the only, I think, real emotion that you see in a way in the film. All of the men are so impassive. They're so disconnected from their emotions and their feelings and everything that they're doing. And yet she is sitting there and you see her face crumpling and she says, you have no idea what it was like for us. And I think that in that moment, the, the sort of the film's exclusion of the women 
hits home and we're, we are made to feel it. We're made to feel the loss of their stories, the loss of their perspectives. And you kind of, and then for me, it was thinking back through all of the rest of the film and thinking, mm -hmm. this is what we don't know what Carrie and Irene were saying to each other on the trip. We don't know what Joe's story is. We don't know what Peggy's story is. And that's part of the whole dark tragedy of these men who think what they're doing is so important. And yet they're cutting off, you know, the people that are so close to him. Now, all of that said, I mean, I think the film is judging the men for that and even maybe even being a commentary on all film, gangster films that have excluded women in that ways and, and sidelined them. And so I'm not sure if a film that excludes women in order to make a point about excluding women <laughs> is that like justifying it, yeah. is it perpetuating yeah. the thing that's condemning. But at the very least, I mean, I think the film is honoring that point. And it's, there's an acknowledgement of the loss of women and their voices. And I, I really, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go with it because I think that it is kind of a, you have to, in a way you have to do it to tell this particular story. About I think Frank. that's really well put. And by the, the actress who plays Dolores is Marin Ireland, by the way. Yeah, um, she's great in Sneaky Pete. Sneaky Pete. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's also in Hell or High Water, <laughs> so you might have seen her in, in those things. But uh, yeah, I mean, with that one speech, you kind of get a glimpse of like, what are all these other stories that were never told, right? What like that yeah. basically like if you made a movie about her life, it would be like a, a dramatically different movie. It might be totally. a horror film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and that's like a really profound moment in the film. And and uh, and. Uh, I don't know that I, f you know, uh, I don't know that I fully agree with you in terms of like uh, that. That is the point, like the movie consciously making that point. But I, uh, I think it's really uh, well, like there's enough, certainly enough evidence to like back you up that that's that's the case. And and the the performance by Marin Ireland really brings it home. So, um, anyway. Thank you for sharing that with us, Melissa. And I think like we're about out of time here. Does anyone have any other pressing things they want to bring up? about the Irishman before we wrap up here. I just uh, specifically want to call out, um, I mean, we talked a bit about Pesci and De Niro, but Pacino in particular too, like this is a really interesting role for him because it's not against type. It is very much like taking that manic Pacino energy and sort of like his magnetism and pumping it up and showing him as a guy that could like get a ton of people to follow him and him being potentially somebody who could be president one day. There is, but there's so much joy to his performance too. Like his, yeah. that meeting in Miami, the give no fucks way he just <laughs> goes about life. I think he embodies really, really well. And we've, you know, we've lived through, uh, talking about the past decade for De Niro, the past decade for Pacino, <laughs> Has not been great. So, yeah. like, not a yeah. Jack and Jill fan. It sounds like Devendra. Not a Jack and Jill fan. <laughs> um, that uh, that Duncachino commercial. Uh, is, is it that movie? Yeah, it's that is, movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm never. I'm never gonna forget that. You're never gonna and buy Duncachino again. I think. Never again. Movie, never yeah. again. But I, I love him in this movie, and I love that. Um, yeah, it's finally a movie where they can all kind of be together and also with Scorsese too. Like th this is like such a dream team moment. It's funny, like for all of, uh, yeah, his talk about, uh, superhero movies, this is basically the mobster superhero team. Even Kytel yeah. shows up. Kytel's yeah. here. He's great. Like one or two lines that he has. Yeah. yeah I wanted more Kytel. <laughs> more, more Kytel. But you know, speaking of Kytel, speaking of Pacino, uh, you know, the, the last thing I want to say about this movie is like, I love the use of language in the film. And Melissa, you alluded earlier to how like a lot of euphemisms are used. And like, yes. I, I'll say the first time I went to a casino, it was Foxwoods uh, Casino in Connecticut. And 
you know, I was joining a, a, a table to play poker and even just the system that they have to like get people onto poker tables. It's like, you know, you know, like my, they'll use your initials and they use the table number and they'll be like, lock it up for DC at table 12. You know, like this whole like language to communicate all this stuff in shorthand. And like, I just find it intoxicating to like, even just that to like learn like what subcultures languages are. And I think this movie definitely gives you a lot of that. I mean, um, the yeah. phrase it's what it is, uh, yeah. is said, I think 15 times during the course of this film. And it's fascinating, but also chilling. It's I'm kind of like, what is the etymology of like, it's what it is. How did they decide this is what it means when they say they're going to kill you? You know what I mean? Like, I'm just always, I'm fascinated. Like if every, when he says it, everyone knows that's what it is, right? Like everyone knows yeah. what the, that's what that means. And, uh, I just I just find that fascinating. Basically, and, saying the decision has been made, right? You right. know, yeah, it's basically yeah. what they're saying is yeah. that there's no changing this decision, right? It's well, what it, wasn't, it, is. it wasn't. Yeah, the decision was like, if you don't stop, something terrible will happen. No, it's like, what it is happens. It's like a done. It's done. No, no, we no. Decided no. that if you, you know, it, 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 yeah, you've got zero more chances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was it was threatening Al Pacino, like you need to stop what you're doing. Um, or else you will be killed. I don't think it was your. Yeah. That, that's my. That was my interpretation. Is like he was not completely dead yet, but if he doesn't stop, he's gonna die. And that's why Al Pacino's like they wouldn't dare. You know, they like, wouldn't dare. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but anyway, I, I I love the language of this film and and uh, how it's used and and what it means to the characters and how they feel the significance of it. So, just wanted to shout that out as well. Anyway, Melissa. We have kept you a little bit longer than we promised, so I want to wrap things up here. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. This episode was edited by Baby Zhang. And stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Melissa, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Um, I'm on Twitter at 1AprilDay, and I also write for Seattle Screen Scene. Thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. Uh, Jeff Kanata, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. I have a video game podcast where I talk about video games. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. I also do a live play Dungeons & Dragons show. Uh, we are right around three and a half hours an episode as well, but lots of excitement, lots of fun. A really cool episode last week where a character fell in love with a werewolf. If you're into that, check it out. It's really good. I'm super proud of it. <laughs> so uh, find that uh, as a podcast, anywhere you get podcasts, by searching for The Dungeon Run. You can find it on YouTube as well by searching there for The Dungeon Run. Or you can watch it live as we record it Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. Devinder Hardware. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about tech at Engadget.com. Also check out the Engadget podcast because I'm co-hosting that. And this week on Culturally Relevant, which is my weekly interview slash discussion show, I talk with the man who played the Peloton husband in that viral Peloton ad. This is not a joke. Uh, I did interview Sean Hunter, who plays the Peloton husband, and it was a fun chat. So check that out at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Next week, we'll be reviewing Uncut Gems, a new film by the Safdie Brothers starring Adam Sandler. Uh, so check that movie out in theaters. It'll be going wide. Uncut Gems is a movie. I'm really looking forward to this chat uh, about the movie next week on the podcast. Hope people will join us for it. Thanks for listening to the Slash Homecast. We'll see you next week. Yeah.